0: Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, uh, reporting for Room Now from ULR 2021. And I'm going to talk to you today um, about an oral presentation uh, from uh, Friday's uh, session on rheumatoid arthritis, uh, comorbidity, and clinical aspects. And um, this is by Dr. Helgren. And it's a study OP0210, entitled Pregnancy Outcomes in Relation to Disease Activity and Anti Rheumatic Treatment Strategies. women with RA, a matched cohort study from Sweden um, and Denmark. So quite a mouthful of a title, but very informative um, as well. So this was a uh, registry-based study in these two Scandinavian countries, um, and they had 1,739 RA pregnancies, um, and then matched them in a 1 to 10 ratio with 1, with 17,390 control pregnancies in patients who did not have orA. So what they found in this study was that orA increased the risk of both preterm birth and small for gestational age infants compared to controls with an odds ratio of 1.9 for both. Um, and this is uh, something we we kind of knew from other studies that rheumatoid arthritis um, increases uh, the risk um, of poorer pregnancy outcomes. Um, and the big question of what this study then went on to look at is, why does it do this? Is it potentially related to the disease itself? Is it related to medications? Is it something else? And can we do anything about it? And... Um, So when um, they broke this down into the disease activity as measured by DAS28, they found that those who had low disease activity, um, so less than 3.2, those ORA patients did not have any um, increased um, risk um, for either uh, preterm birth or small for gestational age infants. The odds ratios were were essentially one. But when they looked at those um, with higher disease activity, the odds ratios increased um, and the higher you went, so if it was greater than 3.2 in the last 28 it increased a bit. If you went greater than 5.1, it increased further. So it seems that um, there was a direct uh, relationship between um, the disease activity um, and the risk of poorer outcomes. Um, they then went on and they con- compared rheumatoid arthritis patients who had disease activity um, of less than 3.2 on um, the DAS28 to those who had greater than 3.2, and looked at the comparative odds ratios for that. Uh, so, this is comparing ORA patients with low disease activity to ORA patients with high disease activity. And they found that ORA patients with high disease activity had an odds ratio of 2.7 um, for preterm birth and an odds ratio of 3.4 for small for gestational age infants. So, again, this is further reinforcing. The fact that it really seems to be disease activity um, that is uh, the risk here, not any of our um, treatments that we use in uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And in fact, in fact, the the follow on from this is that if if you're using um, some of our agents to improve disease activity, that our medications should really be associated with improved uh, pregnancy um, outcomes. Um, and this is. I guess, something we should really do better in clinic. I think a lot of our patients, despite the fact that we tell them our medications um, are safe in pregnancy. We're not doing well at getting that message across. Um, and a lot of patients still prefer to stop um, their medications um, during pregnancy with the best intentions. They don't want to, to be giving anything forward, putting anything foreign into their body when the baby is developing. Um, but I think we need to do better at, uh, Bringing across this data, which in fact says that it's a risk to the baby not to be on these medicines, that the pregnancy and the baby are going to have worse outcomes if the rheumatoid arthritis um, isn't controlled. So really, we should um, continue um, these medications where safe uh, during pregnancy. Uh, You can follow me at Twitter, Um, at Richard P. A. Conway and remember to tune in to Room Now for more news and information from UNR 2021.
1: This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm at ULAR 2021 And I just found this really fascinating poster. It's poster number, oral presentation, OP0133. And what this poster did, it was a Kaiser Permanente cohort study, and they were evaluating the prevalence of hydroxychloroquine retinopathy in long-term hydroxychloroquine users. And what they did was a retrospective study of 676 patients who've been on hydroxychloroquine for more than five years. They found that about 6.8% of patients had confirmed hydroxychloroquine retinopathy. Now that's a little bit high prevalence there, um, uh, particularly in anywhere between five and, you know, 10 years of use. Anyways, about 159 of them had an abnormal OCT. So the risk that they found associated with retinopathy is older age, and in fact, in age of greater than 80 years old conferred an odds ratio of retinopathy of 3.83, confidence interval of 1.31 to 11.21. They also found, surprisingly to me, is that if a patient has a history of atherosclerosis, their odds for developing hydroxychloroquine retinopathy also increase, odds ratio of 2.99 with a confidence interval of 1.39 to 6.43. Now, cumulative dose greater than 2,000 has a very significant um, association with retinopathy with an odds ratio of 15.8. And this confidence interval spans actually between 3.24 to 76.9. The longer period of use, like 10 to 15 years of use, the odds ratio is also significant at 4.44. And the confidence interval is 1.71 to 11.55. And then if the patient's been on it for more than 15 years, the odds ratio is probably one of the highest I've seen, which is uh, 19.33 um, with a confidence interval of 5.46 to 68.41. So this begs the question, the study begs the question, what if you've had a patient with lupus who've been on hydroxychloroquine for 15 or 20 years, and it's been controlling their disease, they're stable, what would you do? Would you stop the dose? the medication? Would you lower the dose? Would you um, perhaps even just switch them to a drug of different mechanism of action? I mean, hydroxychloroquine is one of the lifesavers for lupus. I mean, it's been shown to reduce mortality. It's been shown to reduce lupus flares, help with lupus nephritis, uh, improve glucose tolerance, decrease the risk of miscarriages and thrombosis. So it, it is a very good drug. Um, In my opinion, I mean, I know that Dr. Michelle Petrie checks full blood hydroxychloroquine, but in my opinion, I might, as the patients get older, lower the dose. So this is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. This is Dr. Katherine Dow reporting for Room Now at ULAR 2021. I'm in my lovely office attending this conference overseas. Anyways, I wanted to talk about poster 0103. And this is a French GR2 perspective study of 290 lupus pregnancies. And what they did was describe the variations in C3 and C4 serum levels. Now, we all know that complements can increase in pregnancy, and that includes patients with lupus. And with lupus, though, this is a complement depleting disease, a complementopathy um, type of disease. So oftentimes, we like to check C3 and C4 levels to assess disease activity. But when a patient's active and you're not quite sure, are they flaring and their complement levels are increased, how do you interpret that? So this is actually the first study. It's a prospective longitudinal study of lupus pregnancy. So I thought this was just really fascinating because for the first time, they actually quantify how high does the complement level go up in lupus pregnancies. They looked at 290 pregnant women and there were over 669 measurements of C3, 678 measurements for C4. And they found that the mean C3 value increased by 28% and the mean C4 values increased by 11%. And this is comparing first trimester to third trimester. So with these results, um, this might actually lead to a more precise definition of what the lowest cutoff value is when accounting for lupus disease activity in pregnancy. So I found this study possibly useful, particularly in clinical practice. This is Dr. Katherine Dow. Follow me on Twitter at kdow2011.
2: Hi, I'm Jack Cush with RoomNow.com, talking on proceedings from ULAR 2021 being held, supposed to be held in Paris. It's now being held worldwide, virtually everywhere, including where you are right now. I want to talk about highlights in psoriatic arthritis so far from the meeting. A number of very interesting abstracts, the two that immediately caught my eye. One presented yesterday about Fecal microbiome, microbiota uh, transplants, FMT, in psoriatic arthritis patients. That's abstract OP0010 or 10. Uh, it was a plenary session abstract. It was um, a very interesting presentation. Obviously, a novel approach. You know, microbiome has been a hot, hot issue. We think that microbiome is a, is a contributory factor in either disease onset or in disease expression. And the question is, if you alter your microbiome, might, could it work? We do have data in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis that if you lose weight, you get better. Significantly better by usual measures like ACR20. We do have data, less impressive, about gluten free and anti inflammatory diets making psoriatic disease better as well. And so, are these issues of weight, uh, leptins, and other adipokines contributing to inflammation, or are these issues of microbiome alterations? Well, The microbiome transplant has been used in colitis with great success and several other disorders, and it was studied here. In this study, uh, it was 31 patients, not a large group, 15 of whom got FMT. And don't ask me how they did it, don't want to go into the details. Nope, not going to do it. Versus placebo. That was easy. Coming up with a placebo for this trial, you know, a bunch of Oreos in a bag, who knows? Anyway, they did the transplants, and it was a 26-week trial, and they had their outcomes, usual outcomes, and quite surprisingly, the uh, microbiota transplant, the fecal microbiota transplant, FMT, was inferior to placebo, did not work at all. Higher rates of failure with FMT, 60%, versus placebo, 15% at 26 weeks. There was no difference in safety. In fact, there was maybe a little less safety issues with the FMT. But it wasn't just the one primary endpoint. It looked like all their primary endpoints or all their secondary endpoints did not do as well with FMT. This was a big surprise. And um, some of the critique has been maybe how they what they used and how it was um, done uh, methodologically was uh, what killed this study. Uh, these patients were basically patients who had active disease who stayed on methotrexate and uh, but were inadequate responders. So could methotrexate have been something that would have altered the microbiome? And there are some data about methotrexate-altering micro- microbiome. So I don't know that this issue is dead. I just know that this was a surprising result. The second study actually hasn't been presented yet, but I've been reading about it. It's called the Junipera study. Uh, You may not have seen it, but uh, yesterday, June the 2nd, June the 1st, um, Secukinamab was approved for kids with psoriasis above age six, and that's for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis that needs systemic therapy. And that's based on, I think, two or three studies, pretty good outcomes, um, nice advantage because you'd like to see the same drugs that are available for adults being used in kids. So... There's also one of the trials that were done in kids was this Juniper study. This is going to be presented on Saturday, the 4th. Um, it's called LB, Late Breaking Abstract, 0004. Uh, it's a study of, I think, 86 kids with either juvenile psoriatic arthritis or ERA, emphysitis-related arthropathy. Um, this was a two-year study, but it had like a 12-week primary endpoint. And when they looked at how these kids did, both by uh, pediatric or juvenile, ACR 30s and ACR 70s, um, significant improvements over placebo. But nonetheless, this is a nice advantage, a nice new addition for treatment.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting for Room Now from ULR 2021. I'm here to talk to you today about a study that was presented um, on Thursday. It was an oral presentation um, in the Rheumatoid Arthritis uh, Comorbidity and Clinical Aspects session. Um, it was presentation OP0101 uh, by Dr. Yoshida and uh, colleagues. Uh, and this study was titled Rheumatoid Arthritis Disease Activity Over Time and Subsequent Cardiovascular uh, Risks. Um, so, essentially, in the study, the authors were um, looking at rheumatoid arthritis uh, disease activity, um, how that changed over time, and how that impacted on the cardiovascular uh, risk of patients as measured by MACE, Major Adverse Cardiovascular Events. And um, they had over 40,000 patients. And they measured disease activity using the CDI, the Clinical Disease Activity Index. Uh, I like the CDI. It is, um, avoids uh, inflammatory markers um, in its construction, meaning it's a, it's a good measure um, for day-to-day working. And it avoids untoward influences of uh, certain medications um, on um, those inflammatory markers, which may not accurately reflect overall uh, control of disease. So, um, what uh, these authors found um, was that a moderate or high CDI within the first six months um, of rheumatoid arthritis uh, treatment was associated with um, a significant increased risk of major adverse cardiovascular events. And that after six months, um, those increased risk um, appeared uh, to diminish um, and essentially, Disappeared over time. And this is this is interesting. Um, we know that rheumatoid arthritis patients are at increased risk of cardiovascular um, events. And we think a lot of this um, may potentially be related uh, to disease activity. Um, and that's what the author's findings corroborate that. But they also show that it seems to be early disease activity that is more important. And this has potential clinical implications. Um, obviously, we all have an inherent belief that we we should treat our rheumatoid arthritis patients um, as well, as quickly as possible. Um, But this just further emphasizes that being aggressive and getting people rapidly into remission um, has potential benefits, not just to their symptoms, not just to their joints, um, but to their risk um, of comorbidities, and in particular in this study of cardiovascular um, risk. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Richard P. Conway and remember to tune into Room Now uh, for more news and information from ULR 2021.
3: Hi, I'm Dr. Aurelie Najm from the University of Glasgow, UK, reporting for REM now at July 2021. Today, we are going to talk um, about one of the most frequent RA extra articular manifestations, interstitial lung disease. And to discuss that topic, I have invited um, Dr. Père Antoine Juge from Bichat Hospital, Paris, France. Um, And just to give you a little bit of introduction here, so Pierre-Antoine and his group have described um, the association of the MUC5B promoter variant with RA-associated ILD. And very interestingly, actually this year, uh, your findings have been confirmed in a large biobank in the presentation OP0007 by N.T. Palomaki. What are your thoughts about this, Pierre-Antoine?
4: I think it's uh it's always good to have uh, such an association that is replicated in a real life study and with such a huge uh, number of included patients and if you see If you look at the figures that you gave in the abstract, it's very interesting to see the uh, cumulative incidence of uh, ILD within the array patients uh, carrying the variant and in the non array patients carrying the variant so it's very uh nice to see this replication.
3: Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's really always nice to have your work confirmed, isn't it? Um, and, and also, I think you presented today some work on epidemiology and mortality of RAILD, OP0099. Um, is there any reason why we still do need incidence and prevalence data in RAILD, to your opinion?
4: It's very interesting because it's, uh, it's not very explored uh, manifestation in an epidemiologic way. And we had the um, privilege to use the French national health database to explore this. So it has some limitations because of the code age uh, diagnosis. And maybe we have not uh, de- uh, assessed all the infraclinical interstitial lung disease. But we have a clear map to what the rheumatologists or the doctors think to uh think that are raild that's what they code for RAILD. so that's a very interesting uh point of view uh which is not a cohort study or a case association study so it's a, it was nice to have this french whole french group of patients to study
3: indeed that's and that's we very... also
4: Yes, we also use that to uh, compare the mortality, uh, which we don't have many um, new recent uh, epidemiology data. So that's very interesting too.
3: Yeah, that, that's great. How do you how do you place these findings within the current literature on the topic? Does that fit with the previous reports um, on epidemiology of IILD?
4: I think uh, we have found a very few number of array ILD within the array populations. So frequency was about 2.5% uh, of array uh, ILD within array patients, which is very few. And I think it's because of the bias induced by the codes. But uh, within this array ILD population, uh, we have a very reproducible um, data. There are more men, there are elder. And so I think we can learn from this population.
3: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And um, tell me, what does that, what to you, what does that mean for the rheumatology community? What is the, the take a message for this?
4: Well, first I would say that um, regarding the Luke 5D variants, it means that maybe we can use genetic and maybe associated with other clinical features to maybe detect or uh, try to stratify uh, the ILD uh, screening within the area patients. And that was one thing we don't know how to do yet. The second thing I would say that in our study, we found that uh, area ILD was associated with a higher mortality. And if you look to other abstracts uh, that were published in the ULR this year, we, show, we, we have shown that rheumatologists could take care of comorbidities and lower the mortality of RA patients within the years. But we still need to take uh, this ILD thing into account and to find how to decrease the mortality induced by RA-ILD.
3: Yes, absolutely. I guess the next step would be to to look into more details on maybe treatments and how to slow down the progression. Um, Thank you very much, Pierre-Antoine. I think that was a really, really interesting uh, data that you shared with us today. Um, For more EULAR 2021 coverage, head to remnow.com and follow Aurelie Romo on Twitter. Thank you. Thank you,
4: Aurelie.
5: Hello, this is Jonathan Kay from the University of Massachusetts Medical School reporting for Room Now at ULAR 2021. I wish that I was in Paris, but instead I'm watching ULAR 2021 virtually on my computer at home. I'm still a bit jet lagged because I had to get up at four o'clock in the morning to begin watching sessions today. However, I'll try to give this a go. Does treatment with anti-rheumatic drug therapy increase the risk of cancer among patients with rheumatoid arthritis? On the second day of ULAR 2021, a clinical science session was devoted to onco-rheumatology. To introduce this session, Eva Sekinich, an oncologist from the University of Debrecen in Hungary, spoke about the intersections between rheumatology and oncology. Oncologic aspects of rheumatologic disease include secondary malignancies occurring in autoimmune inflammatory diseases, soluble tumor-associated antigens in rheumatologic diseases, and an increased risk of malignancies with some antirheumatic drugs. Rheumatologic aspects of cancer include rheumatologic paraneoplastic syndromes, autoimmune complications of checkpoint inhibitor therapy, osteoporosis occurring after hormone deprivation therapy for treatment of breast or prostate cancer, And malignancies of the musculoskeletal system. In abstract OP0187, Haragai et al. assessed the incidence of malignancy in the IORA cohort of over 8,000 Japanese rheumatoid arthritis patients seen at Tokyo Women's Medical University between 2013 and 2019. They found the overall risk of malignancy to be similar to that in the general Japanese population, but the risk of lung cancer was significantly lower. However, As is known to occur in patients who have had active rheumatoid arthritis, there was a nearly fourfold increased risk of lymphoma. When compared to data obtained from the same cohort between 2001 and 2005, the lymphoma risk had decreased by 50%. They attributed this to better disease control achieved with the use of methotrexate doses higher than 6 milligrams per week, which is what used to have been the standard in Japan, and the availability of new biologic DMARDs and JAK inhibitors. John Askling of the Karolinsk Institute reviewed the incidence of cancer among rheumatoid arthritis patients treated with biologic and targeted synthetic DMARs. TNF inhibitors do not increase the risk of cancer over up to 10 years of follow-up and may offer some protection against the development of lymphoma. TNF inhibitors also do not increase the risk of cancer relapse. However, this may reflect a channeling effect of the reluctance of most rheumatologists to use TNF inhibitors in patients with a history of cancer. There is no signal of an increased cancer risk with either rituximab or tocilizumab. However, for abatacept, a meta-analysis identified a 20% increase in overall cancer risk that was largely driven by the development of non-melanoma skin cancers. Although it has generally been considered that there is no significantly increased risk of cancer with JAK inhibitors, a 50% increased risk of malignancy was observed in a study designed to assess the cardiovascular safety of tofacitinib. This signal should be investigated further in other studies of tofacitinib, especially in those of longer duration. If substantiated, the possibility of an increased risk of malignancy should be investigated for other JAK inhibitors. Askling hypothesized that the inflammation which drives the development of cardiovascular disease and rheumatoid arthritis may also drive cancer risk, not through a shared mechanism, but likely as a result of shared risk factors. Notably, Channeling bias may account for the reduced occurrence of lymphoma and cardiovascular disease that has been observed with the use of TNF inhibitors. Although there is a theoretical risk that biologic or targeted synthetic DMARDs could affect cancer risk, in practice, they do not appear to be a major risk factor for the development of cancer. Most cancers occurring in patients with rheumatologic diseases have no relation to the underlying disease or to its treatment. However, follow-up in most safety studies looking at cancer risk has been relatively brief, up to five years and most. Thus, we do not know with certainty what is the risk for all cancers with all DMARDs. Much interesting information has been presented today. For more ULR 2021 coverage, head to roomnow.com. I'm Jonathan Kaye.
6: Uh, Hello, uh, hi everyone. Uh, My name is uh, Dr. Yusuf uh, from Leeds UK. Uh, I'm uh, reporting uh, on behalf of RoomNow for this year's uh, EULA 2021 Congress. Uh, Today is uh, day two of our Congress and there have been many uh, interesting uh, studies and results uh, that have been prevented but the one one that really caught my eyes uh, is uh, a positive uh, phase two uh, results uh, of a sequential uh, therapy uh, using uh, rituximab followed by belimumab uh, for the treatment of systemic lupus erythematosus. Uh, this uh, study uh, was presented by uh, Professor Mike Ehrenstein uh, on behalf of his uh, BID lupus uh, colleagues uh, in the uh, abstract uh, title uh, OP 129 uh, as we all uh, know, um, rituximab uh, failed uh, to make to meet the in uh, the primary endpoints in the initial uh, pivotal uh, trials in systemic lupus erythematosus. Uh, however, uh, rituximab uh, has been uh, shown. Uh, and has been used uh, off-label in various uh, other uh, centers uh, with uh, quite high uh, efficacy rate. Um, One of the uh, problem with uh, rituximab uh, is uh, potentially uh, that uh, the depletion is uh, seldom complete uh, and also uh, there's uh, various uh, mechanism of resistance uh, to the therapy. So uh, one of, of the uh, idea um, or a possible mechanism uh, of this resistance uh, uh, is that uh, following uh, B-cell depletion uh, using rituximab, uh, the buff uh, level rises uh, hence uh, leading to uh, increase uh, production of uh, autoantibodies. Uh, so therefore, uh, this uh, phase two trial, which is called bit lupus trials, uh, aim to investigate whether if you give belimumab uh, uh, after rituximab, uh, it will um, you know, reduce the, uh, the buff level and also the uh, auto, auto antibody level um, so that we can have a better uh, efficacy and a sustained response. So, uh, this uh, study is a phase two uh, randomized uh, trial. Um, so, the uh, investigators uh, recruited uh, 52 patients. Um, so, uh, each of them, uh, also all of the patients were treated with uh, rituximab uh, at baseline. Um, so, in between four to eight weeks after the first infusion, uh, they then uh, receive uh, belimumab uh, infusion monthly. Um, So the primary endpoint uh, is uh, the uh, log uh, NT double cell DNA uh, at uh, 52 weeks. So the endpoint we use here is a biomarker endpoint rather than clinical efficacy. Um, However, uh, the secondary endpoints, uh, they also uh, measured uh, the uh, disease activity, uh, flare uh, and uh, and safety. So in this uh, study, um, they, what uh, the investigators have found uh, at 52 weeks, uh, more patients who receive rituximab followed by belimumab um, achieve uh, uh, significantly reduced uh, log anti-DSDNA antibody compared to those um, who were treated with rituximab uh, followed by a placebo. Uh, so hence, their primary endpoint uh, was met. Um, we then you know, look into uh, the clinical endpoint, which is uh, the severity of flare-up, uh, which is uh, you know graded as biologic, like, you know uh, instrument by like grade A, uh, and here uh, there is. Um, So treatment, this sequential combination therapy uh, actually uh, have uh, uh, a lower uh, risk of uh, uh, severe flares compared to uh, rituximab uh, plus plus placebo. So this is really an uh, intriguing uh, result uh, uh, in in terms of uh, drugs development. Um, And this also uh, contrasts um, uh, with uh, uh, recent uh, published uh, studies uh, which uh, evaluated this uh, this sequential uh, therapy um, in lupus nephritis, uh, which was published last year in uh, uh, Arthritis and Rheumatology website. Uh, Therefore, um, in terms of uh, applicability to clinical practice, would we use this as uh, sequential uh, therapy uh, in clinical practice? Um, so I think what we need, uh, we need more um, sort of larger scale uh, trial. Uh, I suspect that this, um, you know, will translate into phase uh, t trials uh, to assess this um, because uh, I expect as well, to do a phase three trials, uh, they would have uh, had to use a, a clinical endpoint as the primary endpoints, in you know, order to gain uh, FDA and uh, EMA approval. Uh, I think uh, once uh, you know we have the data of the phase three trials, uh, then after that, um, you know, this can be used in clinical practice. But certainly, um, you know, this results is uh, uh, intriguing. Uh, and a positive news uh, for uh, the lupus community because we are seeing uh, many more uh, positive uh, uh, trials in the field of systemic lupus. Uh, As as we all know, uh, it is very difficult to uh, conduct a trial uh, in a disease with uh, heterogeneity in clinical manifestation. So I hope uh, you find that uh, uh, review useful. Um, so uh, tune in to uh, Rheumatology uh, room, room now for more video uh, and updates. Uh, and you can uh, follow me at my Twitter handle, uh, use 6 user. Thank you for listening.